I want to start this episode of Well Disguised with a non-controversial position. And that's this. We're all fans of something, right? I mean, everybody is a fan of something. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a fan of rock and roll. I may flatter myself in thinking there may even be a few of you out there who are fans of me, or fans of Well Disguised. But generally, you're listening to this podcast because you like hard rock music, you like heavy metal music, and it's 20 or 30 minutes of your time. Typically, this episode will be a little longer. It's not so badly spent. Now, maybe some fans take it to the next level. For example, maybe some of you are so conceited and arrogant enough that you think that people might want to hear your opinions, so you start a podcast about something. And yes, that's me being self-deprecating to all my fellow podcasters who are good enough and gracious enough to listen and sometimes support and promote Well Disguised. I really thank you all. Anyway, one of the things that I was interested in, though, when I was coming up with Well Disguised, and one of the things I wanted to talk about was the idea of fandom. And the idea that there are things that move us all, but for some of us, things really move us and make us super fans and what that's like. And there were two guests in mind that I had from the beginning that I would like to talk to. One of them is Dave Lewis. Now, I've swapped some emails. It's been a while with Dave Lewis. Dave Lewis is, of course, the man behind the Led Zeppelin fan magazine called Tight But Loose. He's written so many articles, compiled so many things, written books about Led Zeppelin, and he's been doing it for a lifetime at this point. And it, he's he's a fascinating figure. Dave, if you're listening and you still would like to come on Well Disguised, I'd love to talk to you about your life and your work. And the other one is Chris Coe. Now, Chris Coe is a slight pseudonym, but Chris is the Aerofanatic. If you remember the MTV show, relatively short-lived, called Fanatic, where MTV had regular people introduced to their celebrity heroes, Chris is the guy who met Steven Tyler and the, well, four-fifths of Aerosmith in an episode, got to interview them and talk about what they meant in his life, and that's far beyond, I suppose, what the average fan gets to do to have that opportunity to briefly meet and interview his heroes. But Chris went on to do something else. Chris took his appearance on the show Fanatic and invented the Aero Fanatic, his pseudonym online, and turned that pseudonym into a community that did some kind of revolutionary things. Maybe he didn't invent these ideas, but he came pretty doggone close. You'll hear him talk about one of those things in the episode where at a very early level of the internet... He had what he called setlist reporters emailing or texting him from all over the world whatever setlist that Aerosmith played, whatever city they were in on any given night. That's commonplace now. There's even websites dedicated to it. But it was kind of new and revolutionary back when Chris was doing it at a much earlier stage of where the internet was. And then there's another thing. Anyone who knows anything about Aerosmith knows that there's always been friction, if not combustibility. I'm not sure combustibility is a word, but you know what I'm trying to say, whether it is or it isn't, in the band. And there's also been so much a part of the Aerosmith story is their sobriety in the 80s and getting clean 
and how that propelled them back to the top of the hill, maybe even higher than they got in the 70s when they were one of the biggest bands in the world. But that sobriety has not been maintained in an unbroken chain since the mid-80s when it was first reported. Everybody knows that now, but one of the reasons why everybody knows it is because Chris talked about it. Chris actually reported it, and that was sometimes at great risk to the connections he had made with the band from being on Fanatic, but also to kind of poisoning the well of the Aerosmith fan community. If you know anything about fans of anything, you always know there's a certain pretty sizable segment of a group that's not going to stand for any negative news whatsoever about whatever it is they're into, whether it's a musical artist or an actor or a political figure or a religion or a religious figure or whatever. But Chris went there, and you can argue, and I even ask him about it, whether that was a fair thing or a, the right thing to do about talking about people relapsing in their drug use. But Chris did it. And sometimes he did it because certain factions of the band were actually leaking him information that they wanted to get out there. Anyway, I think this stuff's fascinating. Even if you don't love Aerosmith, and we don't get into it a whole lot on this episode, growing up, Aerosmith was always my favorite band. It was the first band that I ever loved. That position has now probably been taken by the band Clutch, but even if you don't like Aerosmith, even if you hate Aerosmith, If you're into something, if you're into that whole idea of being a fan of anything, I think you'll find Chris's story interesting, and I hope you'll like this episode. One final note before we get into it. My voice doesn't sound like this in the interview. I recorded the interview uh, a few weeks ago. I'm definitely fighting off some sort of cold, so I apologize for whatever my voice sounds like coming out of your speakers right now. One final point. If you want to watch Chris... As a young man meeting Aerosmith, I will put that up in the show notes or in the description of this. There'll be a link to where you can watch it on YouTube so you can kind of get an idea of what his encounter was like with the band. It's only going to be maybe six minutes long, I think. But you can watch that and then you can get into the interview or just check it out later. Oh yeah, I'm also throwing up the explicit tag on this episode just because... Uh, Chris makes one kind of colorful metaphor, so out of an abundance of caution. But you can probably listen to this at work if you want to. All right, coming up, my interview with the Aero fanatic, Chris Coe. ladies and gentlemen i am excited tonight to bring you chris co the aero fanatic if you will chris welcome to well disguised hey john how you doing man it's a pleasure to be here with you i'm really excited to have you here and talk about aerosmith and how you became a fanatic and all that sort of thing but just to get us 
our brains kind of pumping here and get started a little bit. Just a, a warm up question, if you will. Who is the third most important member of Aerosmith? That's a great question. I'm going to have to say the third most important member, obviously, behind Stephen and Joe, is Tom Hamilton. Tom See, seems to be the glue uh, of the group. You know, the more sane guy, the more uh, reasonable guy. He seems to be the one who can corral all those egos. Interesting. See, I would have said Brad Whitford because probably a little bit of my guitar bias mm -hmm. and also because we have, as with Joe, we've seen what happens to Aerosmith when Brad's not there. But Tom Hamilton probably seems like the guy who's, like you said, the most level-headed and, and normal of the, of, of the five. I think so. And going back to, you know, the jam band and, you know, the early days with Joe Perry, I think he kind of understands, you know, where they're coming from. So I would say him, but Brad is a, is a close, you know, fourth, I would say. Well, and then we know who number five is. <laughs> the, uh, the, well, they're called the uh, LI3 for a reason, the less interesting three. And um, yeah, the fifth one is pretty self-explanatory. Well, let's get into it a little bit. I know you've had to answer this a thousand times or more over the course of your life, but do it one more time if you don't care. How did you get to be the Aero fanatic? Well... I'll start from the beginning and kind of give you the, the brief Cliff Notes version. Um, growing up as a child of the 80s, I was nine or 10 when I first saw the Run DMC video on MTV. And I thought it was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. You know, I'm coming into my own. I'm watching this new thing called MTV. And I see this video, these guys, and that this really cool, this, and it, for me, it was infectious. And then, you know, I saw the guy screaming over the top. I'm like, who the hell is that? That's something new. You know, I didn't see them, obviously, in their 70s heyday. So I became a huge fan from there. And it kind of grew from the time I was 9, 10, all the way through uh, my early 20s. You know, I was really big on the uh, old AOL message boards, the big Aerosmith fan communities, Aeroforce One. And a friend of mine tipped me off that MTV was having this new show called Fanatic, where everyday normal fans get to meet and interview their idols on MTV. So I'm like, well... I happen to think I'm the biggest fan. Everyone does think they're the biggest fan, of course. So I uh, sent a um, video to MTV just kind of saying, hey, you know, here's my room. Here's my collection. Here's why I think I'm the biggest fan. So it turns out that they reviewed the information. They liked it. They understood that I was a fan and they surprised me. Um, I was going to college at Florida Atlantic University. And uh, as a good student that I always was, I was actually sleeping at the time. So MTV uh, busted in with a good friend of mine and they said, you know, Chris, we've chosen you to be the fanatic and literally whisked me away from there to go to Boston to interview the band. I interviewed Steven Tyler at their now defunct Mama Kins Club. Uh, this was 1998. And the reason why this was kind of a, a congruence of situation is because, you know, 1998 for an Aerosmith fan, I mean, that was probably the fall of 98 was their biggest time over there, the biggest hit. I don't want to miss a thing had just come out. So this was kind of happening right around that time. You know, Aerosmith was huge on MTV. So it was really, it was a, an amazing experience to be able to meet and interview the band from that experience. And from that experience, I was able to become friends with a lot of people close to the band. I won't mention who, but a lot of people who work for the band, who work in management, who work on the road. Um, and I was able to have a lot of con you know, um, conversations, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, here in a little bit. That kind of helped me grow the fan community, Aerofanatic, and I've been doing it since the late 90s. 
but yeah, so it really was me just sending in a videotape of, you know, my crazy fanaticism and um, it kind of grew from there. Let me, yeah, let me back, back up a little bit and go through some of that. When you applied, did you know at that point that there was even going to be an Aerosmith episode or did you just send it in? I'm a fan of Aerosmith and it'd be great to meet them. Great question. Nope. I had no idea they'd be doing an Aerosmith, uh, you know, I, but I figured, Hey, it's one of the biggest bands in the world and it's my favorite band. So I might as well send in a note and just say, Hey, you know, I'm an Aerosmith fan. And you know, if there happens to be an Aerosmith episode, you know, I would love to be considered. So no, I didn't know any of that. I just kind of sent it in and blind luck would have it. There was one. I rewatched. I mean, I'd watched it before. I probably watched it when it came out and I certainly rewatched it before talking to you. What I didn't get a feel for, at least on the clip that's on YouTube right now. So you're saying you just kind of got whisked away to Boston. Is that right? Literally had no idea. I was in class at like a 2 p.m. on a Friday. And by, set, you know, Friday night at 9 p.m., I'm sleeping in the city of Boston for my interview the next morning with Stephen and then ultimately the band. Had no idea. Well, you did a good job, I think, in the limited amount of time asking Stephen Tyler questions. As someone who grew up, with not a not dissimilar story to you in terms of discovering Aerosmith through the Run DMC video, I guess we're second generation Aerosmith fans. What's it like being in the room with Steven Tyler? He's everything you thought he would be. And then more when you're with your idol, a lot of times your musical idol, a lot of times you're worried that they're not going to live up to their expect to your expectations of them. He actually superseded everything that I thought. He was just a really cool down the earth guy shooting the shit, talking. The questions that I had for him, I'm not a fanboy. Uh, a lot of the uh, people that were on Fanatic, you know, like the, the girl who shared my episode, she was a big Tyson Beckford fan. So I guess she liked the way he looked in a Speedo. <laughs> my, my fanaticism's a little bit different. I really enjoy the music and I have been for years. So I think Stephen kind of understood that. My questions came from a place where, you know, I wanted to know about Seasons of Wither. I wanted to know about all these things that I'm sure 98% of the fans he ever talks to don't even know that song, let alone want to talk about it. So I think he understood that I was a big fan and he was just really accommodating. And it really felt like I was talking to an old friend, even though I had you know, been talking to him maybe for an hour. At the end of the episode, it looks like they take you. I don't know. Was that to the warehouse or or? Yeah. You know, I didn't know where it was. They said they had another surprise for me. So I'm like, all right. So apparently the band was um, their offices, Vindaloo office up oh there. yeah 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 so i think that that was kind of a space that they were also um using for um they were doing a television interview i want to say it was for some kind of tech tech company but that's where they use that space for both rehearsing for their management as well as when they have to do tv hits so that's where they brought me in and you're all sitting around the couch and i got to do an extended you know point two interview with the band as well kind of asking all of them questions as well were they as warm as steven appeared to be or was a little different vibe with, with the whole band. Their vibe was exactly like you would think their vibe would be. Tom was just very cool, you know, laid back, calm, collected. Joe was very quiet, you know, in his own little corner, but talked when talked to. Brad was open for anything, um, and Joey wasn't there. So, <laughs> so it's not surprising, uh, but yeah, no. So they, they're exactly like you think they are. A lot has happened. I mean, that was 22 years ago. So, you know, they've gone through their ups and downs. They've gone through their addictions again. So a lot has happened. But that was when they were the biggest band in the world, had the number one song on radio, and they were all pretty level, pretty level headed. So um, it was really an amazing time. Chris, one of the things that's 
intrigues me about you. And one of the reasons I, I had always wanted to talk to you for this show is because, like you said, the, the other, was it Tyson Beckford? Who, yes. what, the, the, the female who was on there with you, who she was a big fan of. I doubt she went on to take it to the next level like you did. So if you could take us back to like 1998, you, you already talked about AOL and that sort of thing. What was the Aerosmith fan situation in terms of the internet and everything else at that point? Sure. Well, you know, I first got online around 95, 96. So, you know, I'm right around the AOL boom. Uh, America Online had the uh, what's called these message boards, uh, alt.aerosmith or news groups, I think they were called. And essentially, you know, just a bunch of us fans who were just fanatic about the band and we would talk about our love of the band. Now, me being a child of the 80s, of course, I liked everything from permanent vacation forward through uh, Little South of Sanity at that time. Whereas, you know, there were some older fans who were, you know, brought up in the early 70s. So they really liked the draw the line and backwards time frame. So it was a good little mix of a community. And of course, the older fans would kind of make fun of us newer fans by calling us teeny boppers or, you know, followers or whatnot. And that same thing happens today. Um, but it was a good mix of kind of, of fans and um, kind of everything grew from that. So in the late 90s, I kind of stayed on AOL. I had my own website for a time, aerofanatic.com. And then I branched out to, to message boards and everything because when I what I was doing was really spreading the love of the music. Again, I was a lot different than everybody else. I wasn't just posting pictures of Steven or talking about how much I love Joe. It was really about wanting to know what's going on with the band. What's they're recording this album? What's the song titles? What are they going to do? And I was kind of one of the first people because Aerosmith, I'm not sure, I'm pretty sure you know, John, but not many people do know is that they were very late into the game when it comes to um, utilizing the internet to their benefit. Very, very slow to do that. Nowadays, it's like you post a picture on Instagram and 50,000 people can see it. But back then, they had no presence really online. So I had what's um, an epiphany because I was very curious to know what they were playing every night. How would we find out what the band was playing if there was no presence online? So I created what was called setlist reporters. So I would take kind of the uh, 35 dates that I saw that they were being uh, run on the tour. And I would assign one member from the AOL message boards or from my message boards to be my set list reporter for that show. So if the first show was in Albany, I had a friend who was in Albany going to the show. And then at the end of the show, he would text me or email me back the set list. So that I would take that set list and I would spread it online. And then everyone else got to see what they played that night. And it was really cool because again, we want to see, oh my God, they played uh, You See Me Crying. The only time they ever played that Jones Beach. Oh my God, you know. So we kind of all got off on that kind of communal experience where nowadays it's commonplace. But back in the late 90s and early 2000s with Aerosmith, you, you really didn't know what they were doing unless, you know, it was from my site or from Air Force One. You mentioned Air Force One. Again, I know what you're talking about. That's Aerosmith's official fan group that's been there for, I don't know, decades, I guess, at this point. Did you have a falling out either officially or unofficially with Air Force One? Yes. So Air Force One is kind of the glossed over, the official fan club. So you're only going to get the good news. You're going to get all the sunshine and roses and, you know, great smells. You don't get the real news. And that's kind of what I prided myself in was no matter how bad or how good the news was, I was going to promote it because I wanted everyone to know the true happenings for Aerosmith. So unfortunately, there was a couple of times there in the early 2000s 
when, um, you know, Stephen was going through his issues and a couple of other people. And, you know, I had known this because again, I have 20, 25 people close to the band who were letting me know, hey, you know, Stephen is not exactly as clean as he says he is, you know, and I can't come out and straight post that because obviously there's, a, you know, a lot of legality. So I would kind of hint around to it. I would, I would post a picture of Lunesta and then like a chopped up line. And I would say like, I wonder if Steve, you know, that kind of thing and allude to it. <laughs> Um, yeah, so a lot of the official members, you know, of Aero Force One didn't like that because I was going against the grain and, you know, I wasn't portraying the picture as sunshine and roses. So unfortunately, I was banned from there. And I believe it was uh, either Joey Kramer or Linda Kramer who didn't like what I was saying. Because again, Aerosmith likes to portray everything as perfect when, you know, we know they weren't. So I stuck to posting my news on my message boards and on my fan website. And then Facebook came along in the mid 2000s. And that's where my, my site really exploded. I want to go back to the last two answers you've given because I want to come back to both of them. So let me go back to the one before that one about the set list. You've seen, I've seen people going back and forth complaining about the set list. Even though I think it's silly, I still get like, it doesn't affect my life whether they play Nobody's Fault in Kansas City or not. I've never been to Kansas City. I'm 45 years old at this point. I'll you know, it's probably less than 50-50. I'll ever go to Kansas City, Missouri. So I don't know why I care whether they play Nobody's Fault or whatever, but I do. Right. You've been dealing with this probably almost, well, sometimes almost on a daily basis at times, you know, when they're on tour. Have you come to any thoughts or wisdom about why people care about shows that they don't actually get to see? I think we love the music, John, and we know how great those songs are. We know how great Nobody's Fault is. You know, we know how great um, Uncle Salty is, Seasons of Wither. You know, a lot of the songs they don't play regularly. So we would love to see them play those cuts because then we have, you know, friends in Kansas City who can experience that amazing song. You know, and I think when it comes down to Aerosmith in the past 15, 20 years, I've kind of rested on their laurels. Every tour has been the same 30, 35 songs just rotated in and out. So it's gotten kind of stale, you know, for us in the community being on the internet as well. You know, when we're looking on YouTube videos, it's all the same songs. It's all the same order. You know, nothing has ever really changed. But I think we love the music so much and we love the music of Aerosmith so much. We want others to experience those other songs that are so rare to see. And maybe we have seen once or twice, um, but give them that little glimpse of that voodoo medicine man or, or just something that's just a little kick in the ass that they don't get to see, you know, often. I think we kind of all revel in that. What do you attribute the lack of variety in Aerosmith's set list for? It seems like a lot of people say there's a number of songs that Stephen can handle vocally at this point in his, oh, and he's in his seventies now. Mm -hmm. Is that the whole story you think, or is there more to it? There's a lot. There's some songs that he can't sing now that he used to be able to sing. Maybe he's, you know, singing in the lower, lower range. Some of it is real laziness. I don't like to say that, but they're, they're used to playing the same 30, 35 songs. Um, some of it is having to get the rest of the band on board. It's always a political thing. You know, Stephen and Joe pretty much put the set list together and then everyone else just either says yay or nay. So you got to get Joe to agree to it. And then, you know, Stephen has to agree to it. Or they play, let's say they play Fever one night and then the crowd doesn't know it. Then the next night, Stephen doesn't want to play Fever. And then Joe Perry's been playing Stop Messing Around for 87 years, it feels like. So, you know, that doesn't change because I guess he's comfortable with it. So there's so many different things that go into it. I just want them to play A, what gets them off, and then B, what they think gets the crowd off. Um, sometimes that's not always the same. 
you know, in this last tour that's going to be coming up here, their quote unquote farewell tour. We'll see how long that lasts. I hope they deviate and, you know, do play a couple of new songs. I don't see that happening. But again, the fact that they're in their 70s, if we can see them and, you know, enjoy them that one last time, I don't think we're going to be complaining too much if they play, you know, stop messing around for the 50th time. It's interesting to me because you mentioned before the Jones Beach show where they play. Well, they did a tour. I don't know how many years ago it was now where they were doing Toys in the Attic in its entirety. And I was thinking like, you could almost say that's always going to be for bands of this vintage. Like if Black Sabbath were going out and saying, we're playing Masters of Reality in its entirety, or Fleetwood Mac was going out and saying, we're doing Rumors in its entirety. Every fan of those bands would say, great, that's exactly what we want. If Kiss went out and said, we're doing Destroyer in its entirety, they'd say, great. Aerosmith did Toys in the Attic, which is, arguably their best album, their biggest album. It's the one that they're always going to play Walk This Way and Sweet Emotion off of it at every tour, at, at every concert they do. But that lasted just for a brief time. And I think it's because a lot of fans were unfamiliar with some of the songs. Was that your impression or your understanding of it? Yeah, I mean, there's a set list flow that's very important too. So, you know, you want to start off with a rocking song and then kick it up a notch for that second song and then maybe bring it down for a ballad. It's like sex, you know, you kind of start off fast and then you want to not finish so quickly. So you kind of go slower and then you go faster. So there's a whole game when it comes to that set list. So I think part of it was, it just kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. They would play like four or five hits in a row and then they would play nine songs, Toys in the Attic, which, you know, the big 10 inches are great and Sweet Emotion is great and Walk This Way is great but are they going to know Adam's apple? So there's a couple of different songs that kind of, kind of messed up the flow and Steven wasn't in the best shape at that point. So being able to, I think it was his knee that was bothering him um, at that time as well. And then there was a couple of other addictions, him and Joe would constantly fight about wanting to do it, not wanting to do it. So they did only do the full album truly one time. And that was at Joan Beach because you see me crying was always the song that they left off. And that's an incredibly hard song to sing. Um, so when Stephen did attempt it that one time at Jones Beach, that really was um, the first time that they did it. But you're right, Toys in the Attic and Rocks are, and Pump, those three are probably the albums that most of us longtime fans have clamored for them to hear and play in its entirety forever. But I think if they're going to do it, they would have to do it in a uh, separate night. Now, Aerosmith's not going to play two nights in a row, probably, so it's a dream for us fans. But I don't think they can do it as part of a regular set in order, one through ten. Um, I think they would kind of have to either mix it around or have a special set maybe the next night, but we're never going to see that. Let's talk about the drugs that you kind of already mentioned. I believe one of the things I read you say uh, on more than one occasion on the the Facebook boards is uh, something along the line, sunlight is the best disinfectant or something like that. Mm -hmm. How much heat did you get about talking as openly as you did about the lack of sobriety in Aerosmith in the past uh, 20 years, give or, give or take? Tons. Uh, like I said, I had, you know, 10, 15, 20 people close to the band that were friendly with me. And, you know, half of them didn't want to talk to me because of what I was saying. And half of them were in Steven's camp, half of them were in Joe's camp. So when I was, you know, talking about Steven's issues, the, the quote unquote Joe camp was, okay, you're talking about Steven, it's true. And then when Joe was having his problems, then the Stephen camp was kind of like, oh, well, you're talking about Joe. But then if you're talking about their guy, they get pissed at you. And it's like, you can't win either way. And, and the biggest thing with Aerosmith, that their story is their comeback. Their story was their sobriety. So I felt in some kind of weird, weird way that if I were to shine a light on that 
it might be able to help in some way. You know, if it came out that Stephen was, you know, doing this, or if it came out that Joe was doing that, and he's almost had a heart attack because of it, if that stuff could bring, you know, a change, because I love these guys, I want these guys to be making music until they're 100. So I don't want to have, you know, God forbid, some kind of issue, medical issue. So in my mind, I say, if I post that information about their sobriety, maybe a, 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 a son might be on the board and might see that, or maybe Tom Hamilton might read what I post. And I'm sure they already know these things. This is not something that was new to them. But in my mind, if I could kind of say without saying what was going on, that somebody or something could help turn the train around. I suppose the obvious counter to that, which I'm sure was made to you, is like this is their private thing and they don't want their the fact that they've relapsed, whether they're, I can't remember if it's off the wagon or on the wagon, whatever, but they don't want that out in public. They don't want to have to deal with that in public. They're going to try to deal with that privately. What would you say to that? Uh, I wouldn't say they're wrong because looking back at that now, I can understand if I was an addict, I wouldn't want the world to know. I would want to try to handle it myself. But then again, sometimes when you think about Stephen and Joe, you know, excess is all they know for 50 years. So, you know, if they don't get that help as soon as possible, even though they don't want somebody blowing up their space online, if they don't get that help, they're not 20, 25 years old anymore. They don't have that, you know, they're in their 50s, 60s and 70s at this point. So it's like one false move, unfortunately, can kind of render things kaput. So I guess you are right that I probably should not have came out in so many words and said that, but they did ultimately conquer those demons again. Um, you know, Stephen's in a great place. And again, that's not it, not contributed to anything I did. It probably is just their family and their friends saying, hey, like I just said, you know, you're in your 70s, you know, you can't be doing this forever. Um, looking at their kids and their grandkids. But if I had a chance to do it over, I probably wouldn't have done it like I did. But that was part of the reason why Aerofanatic became such a popular place is because here's this guy saying all these things that we're not seeing anywhere. He's saying, you know, Stephen is back using. And for six months, I'm hammering this. Stephen is using. Stephen is using. And then everyone's, this guy's a crackpot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And then you see Stephen enter rehab. It's like, oh, well, somebody did know what they were talking about, you know? So you always take heat when people are kind of upset or nervous, but, you know, it comes with the territory. Well, and I'm, I'm not necessarily saying you were wrong. I just was presenting that as kind of the, the obvious, I guess, other side of it. My recollection is that you did spend a whole lot more time on Stephen than Joe. Was that because of your sources? Was that because Stephen's problems was worse? Or am I just wrong? Do you think you were kind of fair, fair on both sides? Or what's your take on that? I was fair when it was happening with both sides. Stevens happened first um, that I was aware of. So Stephen had his issues in the early 2000s uh, after the Just Push Play tour. Joe's happened shortly thereafter. There was always a couple of triggers that you would see if you saw Mark Hudson around the group. You could always say, oh, something, something's going to happen, you know, cross your fingers. Or if you see Joe hanging out with uh, Johnny Depp, you're always like, oh, okay, come on, Joe. You know, so there's there's those things as well. But um, I, I thought that I, you know, stayed on either one of them whenever I knew something was going on. And it's not in a tattletale type of way. I, I never wanted to be like that. Um, I just basically wanted to show and let people know what was truly going on. Hey, Aerosmith had this number one hit, but also, you know, unfortunately, Stephen is back using or um, Aerosmith is going to be playing the Super Bowl. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, Joe Perry, you know, almost had a heart attack at the Billy Joel concert, you know, so. I try to give the full gamut of information. 
Um, and some people love it and some people hate it. So I guess I just keep doing what I do. Yeah, in between the Billy Joel concert and the uh, Hollywood Vampire show where, uh, you know, Joe basically had to be taken to the emergency room for a while, he's had some significant health issues over the past decade or so. What kind of place do you think the five guys in Aerosmith are at this point? Well, I don't know too much about their health as I've gotten older and, you know, in a career and and kids and and all that fun stuff. You kind of lose all of those friends that you had 15, 20 years ago. So as far as their health goes, I hope they're 100% healthy. I don't know anything to the contrary. When it comes to um, the band themselves, uh, could you repeat what that was, John? I'm sorry, I lost track. That's okay. Uh, The question I'd ask you was the Billy Joel concert that you referenced and the Hollywood Vampire Show where Joe had some sort of issue, ended up having to go to the emergency room, that sort of thing. Do you have any opinion or knowledge right now of how the health in the band is here in 2021? I don't have any knowledge about how they are. Um, like we had just mentioned, you know, when you when you are 40 in your mid 40s and you have a job and a career, you kind of lose touch with the contacts that you had. So I hope they're all healthy. Um, what I think is probably going to happen is that the upcoming tour is probably going to be the, their last kind of super tour their last global, if you want to say, tour. You know, they'll play a couple of dates in England. They'll play some Europe dates. They'll play some Japanese dates. And they'll play stateside. Um, That'll probably be their last, like, full tour, kind of like a a thank you tour. Um, And then, you know, they might do one-offs here and there. But again, we got to remember that they're in their 70s and 80s and with with COVID, or not 80s yet, but soon to be. Um, But with COVID, you know, you really have to, those are the, the prime groups that are susceptible. So I'm sure they're all vaccinated, but, and it's really amazing, John, when you think about it, this band has been around for 50 years, traveling, you know, millions of miles to not have an accident, a car accident, a, a, God forbid, a, a plane crash, just so many things that can happen just accidentally hasn't happened to this band is, is pretty damn incredible. I hope they're healthy and, you know, hungry for that last tour and put on a great tour. And then we'll see what happens afterwards. I'm going to ask you to make a prediction when that next show happens. Who is sitting on the drum stool? Joey Grammer. So yeah. you think you think everything's patched up at this point? I don't know if it's necessarily patched up. The band was pretty uh, cagey with um, you know the reason why they didn't let him play with them at the Grammy Awards. You know, saying basically they didn't feel like he was up to his standards. Um, there might have been some substance issues there. They alluded to that I am not sure of, but I think. They're, they're five brothers, and we've heard this so many times that when you have a marriage with two people, it's hard enough, but when you have a marriage with five, they're, they're, they're brothers, they fight. They're not the uh, Gallagher brothers, uh, you know, Liam and Noel, um, right. but I think they understand that kind of Joey is the backbone, and I think as long as his playing is up to snuff, I think that he'll be, uh, he'll be playing with them for the final tour. You talked earlier about there being a Stephen Camp and a Joe Camp in the band, and certainly their friction going back to the 70s is part of the reason Aerosmith became what they became. But in other ways, a lot of times when the band talks, they talk about splitting things five ways and every, everybody gets a vote. Do you think that's more for the media? I mean, it certainly seems that Brad Whitford at times kind of throws up his hands or is like, you know, whatever. You know, this isn't exactly the way I would want it to be. That he. He links that out every few years to just one or two offhand comments and then it goes away or whatever. What's your perception of what the real internal dynamic is? 
I mean, when it comes to touring, when it comes to um, publishing, yeah, I'm sure that that's split and they figure out, okay, the tour is going to be split five ways. And then maybe when it comes to the music, obviously, whoever wrote it will get the publishing. But it, when it comes to the actual, you know, putting together a set list or whatnot, it's a power struggle. And it's always been a power struggle. It's Steven and it's Joe, which is 90% of it. And then the other 10%, you, you have crumbs, you know, you have Brad maybe, or you have Tom or you have Joe or Joey, but it's, it's Steven and, and Joe. And it's been the power struggle. And it's that dynamic that has made Aerosmith so combustible. Because if you think about it, the elements of dynamite, right? When they're all separated, they're completely benign. There's no problem. But when you put them all together, that's where the boom happens. And that's the reason why the band has been so successful over these past 50 years. And I think Brad knows when to take his backseat and Joey and Tom, especially at this point, because they're a lot closer to the end than they are at the beginning. But it's that power struggle. And Stephen and Joe are pretty much the, uh, the runners of everything, the producers of everything. And then Tom, um, Joey and Brad, they just kind of are along for the ride at this point. I remember I was on those uh I think they were the Usenet news groups. I've, I've told this story maybe before when Jack Doug, somebody purporting to be Jack Douglas, and I certainly don't have any reason to believe that it wasn't Jack Douglas, came on those show or came on the news groups. And one of the questions that he answered was one that I had submitted. It's like, why do Brad and Tom and Joey let Stephen do so many ballads or, or something to that effect? Uh-huh. And um, Jack Douglas said, well, they like driving their Ferraris too, yeah. which, which I felt was pretty perceptive and, uh, and something I hadn't necessarily intuited myself, but I thought that was pretty clever. Do you and get, and you know, and you know Go ahead. yeah, to, to that point, yes, they like their Ferraris, but take an album like pump for instance, right? Steven got his, what it takes, right. But Brad was able to get in voodoo medicine, man. So it's like Brad and Tom, and I think they all understand that the ballads are the songs that make the girls cry. So you get, you need those, you need those for radio play, but on an album project, you know, if Steven wants to have a few of his ballads, Joe wants to have a few of his heaters, Tom can come in with a, with a, uh, over the mountain or sunny side of love, whichever it was, or a uh, Brad can come through with a street Jesus. So th- it's that kind of togetherness that they understand that yes, Steven's going to get his, Joe's going to get his, but I can still have a say and do something that really gets my rocks off. To that point, do you think, do you accept the conventional wisdom that Steven Tyler is still kind of obsessed with what I would call top 40 or whatever to, to having the, the big hit pop hit that gets radio play or what have you. And that that still is a real driver for him, even though he's now in like the Tony Bennett category in terms of age. Oh yeah. I, I still think Steven doesn't think he's written his best song yet. I still think that he wakes up thinking that he is going to write his best song today. And if you look at the country album that he put out a couple of years ago, I think that kind of shows it. Country's been, uh, country music has, is the most popular music genre. And Stephen kind of wanted to do a solo album for a long time. And you would have thought, okay, Stephen's solo album, maybe he'll have Dave Grohl, uh, maybe he'll have Flea, you know, maybe he'll have uh, Slash, you know, any one of his contemporaries or, or before, but he went the country route. Now, I know Stephen in interviews has said, you know, he's always loved country music, the Everly Brothers. And, you know, he wrote crying with a twang in his voice. You know, there was a time, you know, yeah. that kind of deal. I don't personally believe that. I think the country was a, uh, you know, a calculated risk to try to get that hit. Didn't work out, unfortunately. I mean, you know, Love Is Your Name had some decent airplay, but I still think Stephen believes he hasn't written his best song yet. And, you know, I wish he would do it with Aerosmith, but I don't know if 
I, don't, I just don't know what's going to happen in these next year. I don't know. See, albums don't sell anymore. So there really is no point to do a full album project. Now, if they're going to do a single here or a single there, maybe as part of a, a project to promote uh, the tour, yeah, I mean, maybe, but I don't foresee probably an album project that's going to be coming up anytime soon, if ever. Well, that's, you know, and that's some, one of those arguments that I've made is that if you're a true artist, you don't care so much about the money. That's easy for me to say when I'm not in the game and haven't, I don't own a Ferrari either, or expect that I ever will. But Joe has stayed pretty regular coming out with solo albums. And then if you can also uh, the two albums with the Hollywood Vampire so far, it seems like he is the one more than anyone else who still has that creativity that that he he needs to tap into in him. Do you think it's just, is it the money? Is it age? Is it just, I've done it all for everybody else? Or do you think it's something different? I don't think it's for Joe. I don't think it's the money. I think he truly loves the music and he loves getting out there and he loves playing. He loves rocking. Um, you know, I think on one of the, I think it was uh, things that go pump in the night or the making of pump, you know, Joe has this quote where he's like, you know, he's a stadium rocker. He's a stadium musician, or a stadium, you know, player. If he was a musician, he'd be playing coffee houses in Cambridge. Yeah. So he loves going out there and, you know, 20,000 fans screaming his name and he just loves rocking and playing that riff and, you know, ending that show. And that's in his blood. That's never going to die. Steven loves the same thing, except uh, he loves it probably a lot more than Joe does along with the money, but they're two different, two different guys. And again, it's that kind of yin yang that has made everything work as long as it has. Of those more recent projects did, did, for example, I, I assume you did not get to see when Tom Hamilton sat in with Thin Lizzy, right? No. Yeah. I mean, I think that was just a European thing, whether it's Steven's country album or Joe's solo albums, the uh, Whitford St. Holmes revitalization, any of those things do it for you in any major way? It's a lot different than Aerosmith. So, I mean, it's kind of good for what it is, but it doesn't have that five ingredients that you need to make that great sauce, you know? So it, it was okay. I mean, like Stephen, um, My Own Worst Enemy is a really good song, I think. I really like Gypsy Girl. You know, Joe had a few good things on his solo album, and obviously the Whitford St. Holmes thing was pretty, pretty killer as well. But it, for me personally, it's not those five guys it's not them cooking up a storm. So for me, I obviously prefer Aerosmith's music for what they were, as long as the guys enjoy doing those projects, I, you know, I'm happy for them. Getting back to Era Fanatic, did anybody with the band's management ever, well, I mean, let me ask it even a little more broader, just to give you any cover in case of what, see what your answer is. Did anyone involved ever give you information because they specifically wanted it to get out? Yes. Did that happen often? Or, I mean, did you ever feel like you were used or a, a, a tool in any way? I never felt used. I felt appreciative of the information because as an Aerosmith fan, I want to know everything about them musically or otherwise. Um, I didn't feel, feel used. And, you know, John, that's never crossed my mind, to be honest with you. I never thought of it. Um, looking back, I probably was at some point because, like, again, you have certain camps that want certain things. And, I guess I was at a certain point, but I mean, I didn't mind it if that's really what it was. Sure. Well, I mean, I think that makes sense because that's, I mean, that's part of the business you ran. I mean, it really, when it comes down to it, you were kind of a journalist in a way, right? I think so. It was more for the love of the music. So I, I would love, like, again, we talked about, 
I want everyone to know what they played in Kansas City. I want everyone to know what the set list was. I want to show that YouTube video of Steven doing a little bit of Home Tonight before Dream On. I want to post that Billboard article about uh, Steven's solo album. You know, I want everyone to know everything about this band because they've given me so much joy and, and love over the past, you know, now, what are we talking, 30 years, 35 years, that I feel like if more people get into the band, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, you need, people need to hear and I don't want to miss a thing. They love that song. So now they're going to go see them in their show and they're going to see the band playing something Kings and Queens, whatever it is. You need one of those ballads, those tearjerkers to get radio play, to get people in attendance. And then you can hit them up with those big, big songs. So for me, it was always about kind of giving the news, the I don't want to miss a things, if you want to say, kind of promoting the band so they can get into them and they can go see them if they've never seen them before. You're hitting the face with a two-hour show that you're, it's simply incredible. I've never seen a live band like them. For me, personally, I've seen them over 35 times. Wish it was more. Um, but again, careers and kids kind of derail that. But for me, I wanted everyone to kind of know everything about Aerosmith and see them live as much as possible. Was it ever important or even within something you thought about to try to monetize it in some way to, to make money off of it? No, no. I, I mean, what what is I mean, I guess if I had a big enough following, like say I had, you know, millions and millions, and there are quite, you know, hundreds of thousands of unique views on a weekly basis. So I do have quite a bit of views, but for me, it's like, what is it going to be? You know, for me, money is not the be all end all. I just love the band so much. I want to spread the music um, that I never really thought about monetizing or trying to make a living off of it. You know, I have a good job, a good career. You know, this is kind of a hobby. It's always been a hobby from the time I was 12 or 13 years old grown into what it is now but i've never thought about monetizing it doesn't really do that for me how much how much time do you put in an average week toward be the era fanatic um well it's a lot different now with kind of covid there's not much news going on and you know with aerosmith you know you'll have your years on and then your years off and then your year on and then your years off so when they're not touring there's really not much going on but when they are touring they have a single out or they have a you know 87 articles where they have, you know, here's the set list. And then I'll work with my buddy, Matt over at aerosmithsetlist.com. And I'll be like, oh, they, they opened with, uh, you know, my girl. It's only the third time ever that they've done it. And the last time was uh, 1989 on the uh, pump tour, you know, so we kind of have all of those stats as well. So when Aerosmith's on tour and when they have a product to promote, I'm a lot busier uh, for obvious reasons than when they're off the road. But I try to keep busy with Joe's side project or Steven's side project or uh, like this past March, I always do a March Madness contest where like I'll pick a topic and kind of have us fans kind of battle things out. And this past uh, this past time is kind of like the most underrated Aerosmith song ever, you know, and I do those types of things because, again, it's it's it, may, it probably sounds stupid to a lot of people, but I just enjoy this band and their music so much that I love doing these things. And a lot of the fans enjoy it as well. Let's wrap up with a few uh, quick questions. What's the song that's in almost every Aerosmith set list that you'd like to see go? Well, nowadays it's Stop Messing Around. That, that's for <laughs> sure. Joe really needs to put that one to a rest. Um, if we're talking about kind of like the hits that I could do without, uh, I mean, Ragdoll. I mean, it's got a good groove, but I've, just, I've, just, I've heard it so many times. Ragdoll or Janie's Got a Gun would probably be the ones that I would say, eh, I could do without. What's the song that you have never heard that you'd like to hear a full um let's see well i've been lucky enough to hear seasons of wither i've never heard voodoo medicine man live 
And that's always been one of my favorites, man. Brad just rips that one up and, you know, it's a great tune. So I think Voodoo Medicine Man would probably be my number one that I haven't seen. I think you're probably going to miss out. I hope not. I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to hear Voodoo Medicine Man. I'd love to hear Combination. But um, that's a great one, too. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to cross my fingers. What do you think of Done With Mirrors? I think it was good for what it was. Um, the band wasn't fully yet embracing sobriety. They needed that album to kind of get their feet wet. Kind of that was their AAA album. You know, when you're a baseball player, you start off in AAA, kind of get your feet wet, and then you bumped up to the majors. Also, without having any co-writers, I know this is probably shameful to say for a lot of fans, but co-writers really helped Aerosmith. I mean, they were pretty much without ideas. And, you know, you bring in your Holly Knights, you bring in your uh, <clears throat> Bounces, you know, you bring in your Desmond Childs, you know, and it helps you write an angel. And it helps you get that uh, radio airplay for the next album. And then you have, uh, you know, Pump, which, you know, pretty much there was not many outside writers at all. But I think, I don't, I don't mind it. I, I don't think, like Stephen, he talks about outside writers and he talks about the song or the, the candle doesn't shine any less if I light my candle off yours. But they needed that Done With Mirrors album to kind of kickstart everything. Um, but it's got some good tunes. You know, I, I love My Fist Your Face. Let the music do the talking. She's on Fire is another great one. That's, a, you know, a really uh, good one that I love. So I think it, for what it was, I think it was a nice little, um, you know, uh, start for the band's second coming. That was actually going to kind of lead into my next question about the, the, the co-writers that you mentioned, whether it's Desmond Child or Jim Valance or anybody else. Do you have a good perception of to what degree they are song doctors tinkering with ideas that are already there or are they writing songs and then other people are adding their name at the end? In for permanent vacation, for pump, for get a grip, I think it was basically a combined effort. I think maybe Stephen might have had an idea or Mark Hudson, you know, had an idea when they wrote Edge, you know, so I think it was more of a, a kind of mix. More so these days, I think it's probably the latter. I think it's more, you know, the Marty Fredrickson coming up with the, the jaded lick and then Steven having the melody, you know, dun, 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 you know, and they kind of work together. Uh, but I think it's probably more of the producer slash co-writer these days than it was in the 80s and 90s. But again, is that because the band is comfortable? Is it because they, you know, are not, I don't want to say lazy, but... I think it's probably more these days. The producers are doing most of the work and then Steven is adding a little paprika to the mix and getting a co-writing uh, effort. But I don't know that for sure, but that would just be my perception. Permanent Vacation turns 34 this year, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, you... uh, well, it was what, 87, 88? So yeah, right around yeah. 34, yep. Do you still see the distinction between old Aerosmith fans and new Aerosmith fans? Not anymore. Not anymore, man. Because that, <laughs> We're all you know, old now. <laughs> yeah, that's but that's the thing. They, they've been around so long that a song like Angel, back when we were growing up, that was considered new Aerosmith. But when you think about that, that song was 32 years ago, right? So that's not new Aerosmith anymore. And you even look at a song like Jaded, Super Bowl 2001. That's 20 years ago. That's not new Aerosmith anymore, right? So for us, it's all old. Aerosmith and stuff in the 70s is like prehistoric Aerosmith you know but it's really strange you know you have a band with the same original members for 50 years and the songs that we thought were the new songs are now played on classic rock stations so it's the it's the cycle of life man it really is Chris I think that's a great way to wrap this up but before I do 
Where can people find you online? Sure. So you can go to my uh, Facebook Aerosmith page. It's uh, facebook.com slash Aerofanatic, A-E-R-O, Aerofanatic. And I'm also on Twitter, Aerofanatic as well. My Twitter page is mostly kind of just my ramblings, uh, you know, insane ramblings of an insane mind, whereas the Facebook page is mostly uh, geared towards Aerosmith and Aerosmith News. Well, Chris, I want to thank you not only for coming on Well Disguised, I really appreciate that, but also for the years that you've given to my childhood favorite band and all the information that you've given. It's certainly brought people together. And like you said, just if nothing else, being able to look at the set list and either cheer or complain about a show you never saw, you know, that gave me something to do for a few minutes a day for a long time. So thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate it. John, it's my pleasure, man. Keep doing what you're doing and stay safe, buddy. All right. That's it. Thank you. All right. I obviously hope you enjoyed that. If you're a fan of Aerosmith, I'm pretty sure you enjoyed it. If you're not a fan of Aerosmith, I still hope you enjoyed hearing Chris's story and background. One of the things I told him after we stopped recording was there is a quote that is stuck with me that I read 15, 20 years ago, back when blogs were exploding. Blogs about whatever you can imagine. People were blogging on the internet about it, and I guess they still are today. But one of the things I remember reading that has stuck with me is someone said, journalism is not something you are. Journalism is something that you do. And Chris is a journalist. I impressed that upon him, like I said, after we talked. Because what Chris did was not what is typical of this type of thing. Chris, I mean, he's not an organization. Aerofanatic's not really an organization. It's basically a one-man show. But it's different than whatever its peers are. As you heard Chris say, he wanted to promote the band and its music and wanted people to be able to hear him. And yeah, that's pretty common, I suppose. But Chris didn't take it to the next step. Chris was not in public relations for the band, either officially or unofficially. That's not what he was into. Chris wanted to talk about the good, the bad, the dirty, and was willing to do it at the cost of whatever connections he had made with the band or with his own community, his own fan community. So yeah, if that meant republishing a press release that came from the band or from one of the band members' camps regarding a solo project or some fawning article that had appeared in some newspaper or whatever, sure, that's something that Chris would put out there on Air Fanatic and still does. But it also meant if it looks like Joe Perry kind of bumped Steven Tyler on stage somewhere and now there's clear evidence of friction within the band again, Chris reported that. And by the same token, if there became stories or evidence that someone in the band or multiple people in the band or almost everybody in the band relapsed and were now using substances again, Chris reported that. And look, right or wrong, whether you agree with that or not, whether that's smart or even ethical, you know, that's for you to decide. The point that I'm trying to make is that it's unusual. I mean, it's one thing if you're covering something in a big macro way, like Ain't It Cool News used to for kind of sci-fi and fantasy and superhero type movies, that sort of thing. For something this limited to just one band being a, a, a soup for super fans of something, to have the kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly focus that Chris did is really sort of unique. 
And it's what makes me find Chris and his whole story fascinating. He's not a capital J journalist, but he's a small J journalist. And especially for someone who does a podcast who is not nearly as connected or has the experience or the talent or the intelligence of someone like Eddie Trunk or Mitch Lafon, you know, that's kind of appealing to me. Because at the same time, well, I don't want to make this about me, but maybe that's what makes those of us who are not the superstars, the connected types in the industry, have something to offer. Anyway, like I said, I don't want to make this about me. But let me make this very end part about me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Well Disguised. If you want to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at well underscore disguised. My email is welldisguised at outlook.com. My website, which I have tinkered with, but I'm still not really happy with, is at welldisguised.com. If you can't get on there, if you wouldn't mind sending me a note, I have heard a little bit of some people having trouble with it. I, every device that I have tried to connect with, either on or off my personal network, I've been able to get to it. But again, welldisguised.com. Also, if you have come to this episode from my last one, my interview with Chuck Klosterman, which you know has been really well received and done nice numbers appreciate that i had the that episode transcribed and it's up on welldisguised.com as a blog post if for whatever reason you want to read it or if you know you have hearing issues or whatever if you would like to read what chuck had to say you can go to that website and read it for yourself i think that's it once again i apologize for this late spring cold I seem to have gotten, but hopefully my voice will be back to normal by the next episode of Well Disguised, which should be coming at you in two weeks. Until then, thanks again so much for listening. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. I'll talk to you soon.